Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. How are you? Doing pretty well. Looking forward to our podcast today. Yeah, me too. I think we've got a fun question to work with. So I'm Parker Palmer, and this is The Growing Edge. Bad. I should have let you say this is The Growing Edge. <laughs> Welcome to The Growing Edge. To the words and To us and how we live between the words. So this podcast, we'll be talking about an aspect of the growing edge that we haven't really discussed yet. So, uh, Parker, why don't you go ahead and read our question of the month? So the question of the month for May has a little preface. When we follow our growing edges... What we are doing may look unwise or just plain wacky to other people, including significant people in our lives. Following the soul's imperative can mean venturing into new and uncharted territory, and it can be difficult to explain things to others when we are still trying to explain things to ourselves. To live an undivided life to follow the call to wholeness may feel lonely when others express discomfort, concern, or even view what we are doing as dangerous. So our May question of the month is this. Have you ever needed to follow a path where you felt lonely or misunderstood, perhaps getting active pushback? If so, what helped you persist and carry through? I think this is a really good question. It's a it's a vulnerable question, you know, but because, you know, that pushback can happen externally and it also can happen internally. And Mm -hmm. so that's two aspects of the the pushback to following the heart's imperative, you know, following what feels like the growing edge. When we came on the question, Carrie, it it took me back to some um, periods earlier in my life when I really was branching out. I was getting off the beaten track. And I know that that this is true for you too. And I was surrounded by a lot of folks who cared about me, but they also sort of had designs for my life. Uh, They had their own ideas about what I ought to be doing or what I was gifted to do or what I was called to do. Um, In my case, I finished a PhD uh, thinking that I was preparing for an academic career But it was 1969 when I finished, and the cities were burning, and Vietnam was raging, and my heroes had been assassinated. And I I really felt like I wanted to use my knowledge on the city streets, not in a classroom. And so I became a community organizer in Washington, D.C., a job for which I had no real preparation, but to which I felt a very strong calling. And of course, I was surrounded by people, including mentors of mine, uh, great mentors, people I really valued and cared about, who cared about me, who were sort of basically asking, what are you doing with your life? Are you are you going nuts? Are you are you trying to commit career suicide? And I have to confess that even though looking back at age 80, everything worked out just fine. It was a hard question for me to answer at the time. Yes, you know, and at the time, there are times in my in my own life as well that I was following something, that, that I was intuiting something, but I really didn't quite have language for it yet. And so you had some language for it. I, I think I need to get off this beaten path, that's suppo- the path that I'm supposed to travel. Um but didn't quite know exactly what that meant. You just knew you had to follow it at that at that point in time. Mm-hmm. You know, hindsight's wonderful. Looking back and saying, "Oh yeah, I had to do that so that I could do that," and I could have never gotten to you know point C if I had not done all these other things first. So, mm-hmm. so at the time, you had all these people around you that were concerned for your well being, for your future maybe even really uncomfortable, like, wow, he's really stepping outside of everything we we kind of have embraced ourselves. Right. 
and, and, you know, we live in a society which, for both men and women, I think, has some pretty clearly marked trails. Um, in my case, this was a trail I was following between, let's say, age 25 and age 45. And men, at, at the time, were supposed to be in an intense couple decades of building a career that made sense, which meant signing on with an organization and rising in the organization and having a title and a nice mm -hmm. office and, and a function that people could actually uh, understand and identify with. And I had none of that. I was inventing my own job as I went over that 20-year period. And I wasn't, I wasn't making much money either. And since I wasn't a trust fund baby um, with all kinds of background support, except for the fact that I'm white, I'm male, and I'm straight, I'm well-educated, I have everything going for me that this society advantages, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't have a safety net in, into which to fall. And I was proceeding largely by, by intuition, by hunch, by what some people call calling or a sense of vocation. And it's really hard to describe that to other people when, when you can't uh, you know, fit their model of what it means to rise in a career or in an organization. Um, and you're feeling a little crazy yourself, and you're feeling lonely, and you're feeling isolated. It's, it was a tough period for me, but as, I've, as I started writing in later years, something inside of me knew that I couldn't not do this. The, something inside of me knew that I was really dealing with my soul's imperative. And the soul doesn't care about other people's opinions. The soul wants you to follow your own truth, your own integrity, and I'm I know that that resonates with you on on the path you chose early on in life. Well, yeah, and I I love that phrasing of it that you were following the soul's imperative, and that the soul its concern is not how it looks in the world; <laughs> it's how it fits with your own your own self, your own true right. self. So. Um, and I, I, I under, understand that process myself. And, you, you know, you were talking about the prescribed role as, as, a, as a man in that point in time. And, I, you know, I, I ran up and I still, you know, bump up against a lot of pushback in terms of being a woman and being a woman following her soul's imperative. Mm -hmm. That what I was supposed to do as a, a nice woman in the world, you know, and then what I actually did. And, you know, there's been a lot of pushback with that. Um, I remember when I first started to go out touring and I was traveling as a, as a performer and musician. And, and I just remember every interview, like radio interviews or interviews that I would get, you know, one of the first questions would be, what do you do with your daughter? Hmm. Because I, I was a mom, you know, and I, I had a daughter and I, and I kept thinking to myself, would you ever ask a man that question? Never, now, it was never asked of me, I can tell you that. You know, and I had to come up with, you know, how, how do I, <laughs> how do I answer that truthfully and clearly, and not with a lot of snark? You know, like, well, I just put her in the closet <laughs> with crackers, you know, and you know things like that. Um, how do I approach that? You know, so, you know, and that's one example of following my heart's imperative and the pushback that comes either subtly or not so subtly from the outside. You know, this discomfort from people around you because you you seem to be following your soul's imperative. Exactly. Um, and I, I have to say, Carrie, I really admire, I still admire this in you, your, uh, your capacity to refrain from snark. Because, <laughs> because I remember uh, an occasion when a particularly annoying person pressed me very hard on what I was trying to do with my life. And in, in exasperation, I said, I'm trying to work my way to the bottom of the heap. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and there's, there's funny in, in this, you know, there's a, a lot of humor. And, and I think humor really helps when you're working and dealing with these kinds of questions and this kind of pushback. Um, a good sense of humor really helps. But at the same time, you know, really thinking about it. Well, w what is it? 
you know, because a lot of times those subtle or not so subtle, you know, things of pushback, um, you know, do press on the heart, do press on our own insecurities, you know, like mom guilt's like a big thing, you know, it's like, you know, you can, you can press on that button. And so how does the world's pushback how is it uh, interacting with me uh, internally? So yeah. there was this, there was this, how do I deal with pushback that's coming externally? And how do I deal with the pushback that comes internally? You know, those are two different kinds of things. And, and they're both a, a, a pretty mighty wrestle sometimes. But in my case, sometimes that internal wrestle was a little more intense than even the outer wrestle. Well, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned children because it, brings back a memory, even though I was not asked about my kids, what am I doing with my kids? Um, I, um, I had three kids. I was raising three grade school age children at the time. And I um, remember thinking long and hard about the fact that, that I wanted to, have, to, to take a path that would, for example, make enough money to help put them through college, or at least get them into college and, and underway. My dad had done that for me, and I wanted to do it for my children as well. Um, and yet, the, the more deeply I thought about it, I, I asked myself what I came to think was an even better question, which is, is not, um, how do I walk this path in a way that uh, prepares my children for a future that they may or may not want to have. I mean, suppose they get to be 18 and they don't want to go to college, and I've spent the last 20 years doing something I hate. Uh, I think I would then hate them too, um, or at least be angry and feel cheated. But I ask myself a question, what, what do I want to model for my children? And I think more than anything else, I wanted to model what it was like to walk a path of integrity, what it was like to make thoughtful choices about the use of your gifts in the world. To me, even at the time, I thought that would be a more valuable legacy than a free ride through, through college. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad I came to that because I, I think, I think, People, people wrestle with these economic issues when they're going down alternative paths. But we, we maybe have a kind of limited imagination about how to respond to those, to those issues and the feelings that, that come with them. And I have to say, again, in hindsight, and hindsight is always better or more accurate than foresight, I have to say in hindsight that I'm really glad that I chose to model something for my children other than how to maximize my, my income, which I certainly wasn't doing at the time. I mean, that really resonates for me, that idea of what, what do I want to model in the world? Not just what do I want to do, but who do I want to be in this world? And that idea of imagination, being able to imagine when the way forward seems like there's no way to imagine a different way. You know, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is there were many times along the road for me that, that I had to reframe what it meant to be successful, what it meant to be, uh, to be in a satisfying vocation. What does that mean? So I had to reframe it. If I, if I thought, if I thought that the only way to have a really satisfying, successful life in the arts, in music, was to be the next Beyonce, I would have bagged this a long time ago. I mean, I'm not so good in spandex. I'm just saying that, that if that was my only window, it, it just would have never worked for me on so many levels. But so often in this process, I had to go back to my heart, come back to the soul's imperative. You know, what is it that makes me as a person, as a soul, come alive in music, in my vocation. You know what? As a person, not just vocationally, but as a person, there was this moment where I had to say, well, I write songs, but I write songs about something. What am I writing songs about? Uh, and follow 
what the songs were actually about. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a different frame. That was a completely different frame. So many times, and I'm still doing it now, you know, that every year I kind of ask that same question of myself. You know, what does it mean to live authentically a satisfying life as a person and, you know, and as for me as an artist? But what does that look like now for me? Because yeah. it, it changes. It does I change. Don't, I don't think that question ever ends because life keeps posing us with new circumstances. I mean, whether, whether in the world's eyes you're failing or succeeding, there remains the question of what has integrity for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a place where you and I are alike. We're also alike in the fact that the Beyonce thing never worked for me either. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I gave it a try, but it really, it really didn't take me very far. So I'm, I'm just trying to imagine you in one of her outfits, but I, I'm not even going there. I am not going there. <laughs> Good. It's not a pretty picture, really. <laughs> it's not a pretty picture. So I, I'm just interested in our own assessment, and it's always hard to assess yourself on this, but where do you think it came for you? This courage, really, I think it's courage, um, or at least, very least, persistence, in kind of going against the grain or swimming upstream against cultural expectations, and maybe especially against expectations of people near and dear to you. I mean, I think one of the one of the oldest stories and saddest stories about personal growth that I know is when a couple of people who are close to each other, who love each other, who care for each other, start in a very natural way to grow apart. Um, You know, one person gets on a path of deepening insight and the other person gets threatened by that. Um, And it, it's really hard to hold those tensions, and more than a few people are unable to hold those tensions ultimately and, and split up or fracture in some way because of it, or something goes dead in the relationship. It might be a partner, it might be a spouse, it might be a close friend, it might be a beloved family member. And, and, and it, I, I think it's worth examining where, where does one get the courage and the persistence to keep going on a path of integrity for oneself. But at the same time, if I may complicate the question, how do we remain open to those critiques that may in fact shed light on something we don't see or the need we all have to kind of negotiate relationships with people we care about so that it's not just my way or the highway, right? I, I think all of these are questions that come with the very territory, the growing edge territory that we're exploring. Yeah, and I think there's also that aspect of finding community, finding those threads, the, the what is supportive, who is supportive in my life, of this idea of living a life of integrity, of living my soul's imperative. Where can I find support for that, and even wise counsel in that. And I have to say, I've been very fortunate in that uh, I've had a strong community of people in my life saying, follow. (laughs) Sometimes it's, we don't really get what you're doing yet, but I I see that there's something here that you need to follow. Um, I have to say, my, my husband has been, Robert, has been one of my most uh, faithful supporters and <laughs> I, 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 I adore him. But uh, he also is very honest with me. You know, there have been songs that I'll play for him, and, uh, and his response would be, now you're not going to play that in public, right? You know? <laughs> but um, I thought I would. Um, and sometimes I, I will. <laughs> Anyways. But, you know, having, having people in your life that, at the bottom line, support what you need to do and, and how you need to grow. But you know, what you were saying about seeing that, that push and pull, even with people who are supportive, we all don't grow at the same exact rate. You know, any long time, uh, even really good relationship, people grow at different rates. They have places where they expand and revelations and insights. It's not like two horses pulling the same wagon, you know, where they, they're, they're in line with each other. No, it's, it's 
it's a little more back and forth. In those beautiful relationships, in those really strong relationships, those kinds of pushes and pulls are navigated and they're even helpful to one another. Wow, you know, Absolutely. I'm, I'm watching you grow in this way. And it makes me really nervous, but it totally inspires me too. Right. Right. Well, I think, you know, you and I are both lucky in that way, as we know, because we know each other's spouses. And my wife, Sharon, has always given me that same kind of support and has always understood what I was trying to do and and has actually often been the one who said, I think you could do that just a little better, you know, so... To, not to divert me from my course, but to help me grow into it, especially in, in her in the way she functions as my as my editor, my first line editor for the last five or six books I've written. But I'm thinking back again to those days of loneliness when I was much younger than I am right now. I'm walking down a path that very few of my peers had chosen or really understood anything about. Um, For them, the path was well marked toward an academic career or some other form of institutional life. And I'm asking myself, where did I get whatever it took to persist on that path? Um, You know, as you know, Carrie, I'm lucky uh, to have had a father who who gave me some of those gifts. Um, and as I've often said, my, my dad, who's a very important person in a man's life, usually, although the, the dad stories aren't always happy stories for people, I feel lucky that mine is. My dad gave me two things that um, I just count as amazing gifts. One is, one was unconditional love. He made it very clear that whatever I did, whether I failed miserably or succeeded fantastically, it wasn't going to change his love for me. And and that's that's a gift beyond measure, you know, that it, it, you don't have to earn the love of one of the most important people in your life. It's just a given, and it will always be there. But the other thing he gave me is kind of paradoxical, a paradoxical pull to that unconditional love. He surrounded me with with what I've always liked to call a force field of expectancy. Now, these were not expectations. These were not concrete expectations, as was true of, of many boys in the community where I grew up, whose fathers expected them to follow them into the business or into the law firm or into the university, or whatever. My dad had only a high school education, and he had no, no such aspirations for me. The expectancy was that, that I, I had capacity. Um, I had gifts. I couldn't do anything. Nobody can do anything they want to do. That's a great American myth, which I think has, has, has damaged a lot of lives. Um, It's just not true that you can do anything you want to do. I mean, I can't be an Olympic pairs figure skater, for example. I'm pretty sure of that. Um, But he had this, this sense of expectancy for me, on my behalf, in support of me. And that force field gave me a space into which to grow, to try things, and to take risks which sometimes lead to failure. But the failure was okay because the unconditional love was always there. And a lot of the growing I did was possible because those both of those things were present in my life. I mean, it, yeah. I think it's an unbeatable formula for gifting another person with, you know, I love you as you are. You don't have to change a bit. And no matter what happens, that love will always be there for you. And at the same time, I see your potentials, I see your giftedness, um, I see your capacity to take on new things. And if you take them on and fall on your face, that's just fine. I'm still here. And I, you know, I, I wish, I wish more people had that gift. I wish our educational system 
would give that pair of gifts to kids. It's such an important formula for human growth. And I think, too, one of the good questions with that, for some of us, that, you know, your story is the story that they say, yes, that's my history as well. And it was such a grounding in my life, and it really helped me as I was going through this you know, through the the journey and the the ins and outs and the ups and downs of my life. But if we didn't have it, you know, who can we give it to? Sometimes I think about how do I manifest that in my life to other people, you know, to the people who are close to me. Um, You know, that sense of you're all right. You're all right with me. Just as you are, you are totally all right. And I believe in you. I believe in the strength of who you are and the goodness of who you are and your potential for growing and changing. And I think that's one of the most powerful things that someone can say to to another person. I love you, but also I, I believe in you. I really do. And And that belief is not attached or reliant upon this achievement or that achievement or, you know, the acquiring of this goal. or It has nothing to do with that. As a person, as a person, as a whole person, I believe in you. Not, you know, that's, I just think that's one of the most powerful things you can say. And to say it out loud, I've, I've, I've taken in recent years the things that I'm thinking in my head. You know, there is the inside voice, the outside voice. Oh, that's my inside voice, and I probably shouldn't say that, you know. And that's kind of funny, but actually saying some of these things that I that I think like I I think you're fabulous. I think you're so creative. I think you have everything you need to do this next step, and I'm here for you. To be able to say that out loud, you know, I I've kind of come to believe that it's all it's not just all right, but it's really important for me to to say these things to the people I care about, to the people I love, to say it in my music, to say it in how I walk around in the world, just how I treat people every day. Wow, mm-hmm. I think you mm-hmm. have worth of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're incredibly fascinating. Mm-hmm. I've never met a person yet that didn't have a, a really interesting story to tell. Never once, ever. You know, your father did it for you, and we can do it for one another. It seems like such a small thing. I think that's the the very definition of being in the world in a life-giving way. It 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 you say, you know, you've never met a person who didn't have a story. I've never met a person who didn't want affirmation, blessing, uh, whatever you want to call it, in whatever form that may take. Um to me one of the most delightful moments in life is you're eating in a restaurant and it's just an ordinary meal. It's not a special occasion. But you have a server who is especially kind and especially attentive and thoughtful. And you're able to say at the end of the meal, thank you so much for making this meal twice as good as it would have been otherwise, (laughs) just by being who you are. Um, I think there are these people in our society who are invisible and who go unthanked and and unnoticed. And and that's, that's that's a source of pain in life. For a lot of people to, to feel that they're not seen, they're not heard, they're not valued. And it really doesn't take much to say that word of blessing that says, I value you. And, and, and to really contribute something to a person's life that way. Um, so it's, and which is not to say that it's not also important to leave a nice tip because <laughs> a, a good server deserves a good tip. And they're often working for minimum wage or something slightly above that. And so to help them any way you can. But let's not miss the importance of the good word. As, as David White says in, in one of his poems, one good word is bread for a thousand. Oh, and yes. there just aren't enough good words in the society these days. So with you, Carrie, where do you think this came from, this capacity to go countercultural when you were really a very young woman um, and setting off on a, on a folk singing career, which is 
not, you know, not normally understood as a big moneymaker, uh, <laughs> a, a big status benefit. <laughs> you just loved it, right? I mean, you, you, were, you couldn't not do it. Yeah, the thing that you cannot not do. You know, I, yeah, I, when I talk about vocation, I, I sometimes we'll make a joke and say, you know, when remember junior high school career day when they would put up the cool careers that a person could have uh, on the chalkboard and you would talk about them and junior high school career day. Well, you know, like traveling folk singer with somewhat spiritual current was never on that list. Doctor, lawyer, you know, plumber, you know, all these things. No, they never had it there. Um, but at the same time, it was the thing that I could not not do, that there was something that I really loved about music and how music interacts with people. Because, I, I mean, there's this really deep love of people in, in all of the, the art I create and the music I create. Sometimes fascination, sometimes bewilderment, um, even disappointment. But love, you know, a lot of love for human beings and human condition. Um, and how that interacts, how that can interact with music. So, um, and I, I just think by nature, you know, so, I, I do think people are born with kind of temperaments. You know, if anybody who has, you know, siblings in their life, you know, their parents will tell you, you know, you were both born into the same family and you came out two different people from the moment you were born. And I, I think I, I emerged into this world thinking that the that the universe was kind of a friendly place. And... I didn't always have confirmation for that, that it was a safe and friendly place. But deep down, that's kind of where I originated and that I kept on believing that. So I think part of, you know, that being able to keep following the soul's imperative is is this deep down sense that I've chosen that the universe is friendly and that I could contribute to that friendliness in the universe, that I could be a part of that. There are parts out there that are not easy and they're hard and they're, they're sometimes even scary or tragic, but I didn't want to be part of that. I didn't want to contribute to that. I wanted to contribute to the part of the universe that, that was friendly, mm-hmm. that you know, supported the best of who we are. So, so, so I think there was just something internal in me that way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, reading a lot of authors like you, um, and uh, you know, actually before we ever met, you know, reading your books was a really wonderful um, support for the the kinds of things I was doing in the world, the kinds of things I was trying to write, and I, I've, you know, it's one of these great joys in my life that someone that I uh, admired so much in terms of your work and your writing and how much it affected me uh, and supported. You know that that following the soul's imperative that I actually got to know personally and we've become friends and now we have a podcast. Oh my gosh! But yeah, that makes us real, right? <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, you know, we were talking about a song to kind of do with this. Um, I think the song I'd like to do is something called "Impossible." I was hoping you'd do that. That's a song that that's been coming to me since we started talking. There's a little tongue-in-cheek with it, you know, this idea that, you know, it starts out with engineers have determined that bumblebees can't fly, you know, and that, you know, think about it, aerodynamically, a, a bumblebee, it's just not going to happen. And I love bumblebees. They're just, they're kind of like, they just kind of like fly around and they rumple the flowers and they're kind of rumpled themselves and a little rumpled all the time. And... Next to my house, I have a bunch of bee balm, which the bumblebees love, but like hummingbirds really love too, and butterflies. So you see these graceful butterflies, and then these hummingbirds that zip in and then zip out, like, you know, who was that mask man, you know? But then there's like these bumblebees just kind of rumpling along, going, mm, mm, this is what I do. But engineers say aerodynamically, they're not built to fly, but there they go every single day, you know? Well, could, could we get you to sing about that? Yeah, I could I could sing that. You know, this idea of impossible that there's no way that this could happen, no way through. I just think impossible is an overrated concept. 
things are kind of only impossible until they are not. You know, that was the whole background to the song. So I'm going to pick up my guitar. Engineers say bumblebees can't fly Their wings are too short and their bodies too wide Their one goes a-wandering by It happens all the time It's just the way lightning can be born They measure the clouds and it just can't form But it cracks the sky in every thunderstorm It happens all the time It's impossible Impossible, impossible Until it's not Long gone, a half-formed thought becomes a song We rise from our grief and go on It happens all the time There's a lake that you cannot see across I way through the woods that I thought I'd lost Clearing out all the things that it's time to toss It happens all the time It's impossible 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 Until it's not And I won't say it cannot be It hasn't happened yet But wait and I have lived an impossible life Followed my heart against all advice And yes, I've fallen more than once or twice I'll follow anyway The golden moon pulls from our sleep Feels as close as our hands and feet The road's too hard and it's too damn steep We'll climb it anyway It's impossible 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 Until it's not I love that line. It's impossible until it's not. And, you know, as you're saying it, it made me think about how lucky we are when we have a chance to meet people and become friends with people who have this same kind of upstream notion of possibility in life. I mean, those are people who really open doors and windows for you and encourage you on your path. Both you and I are great Kurt Vonnegut fans, Mm -hmm. and Kurt Vonnegut has this this wonderful uh, notion of of what he calls a carass, which I think is K-A-R-R-A-S-S, carass. It's part of a religion he invented called Bokanonism, (laughs) and um, uh, it's, it's a wonderful concept. He contrasts it with what he calls grand falloons, and a grand falloon is is a typical organization which is highly self-conscious of trying to achieve a a goal in the world, highly organized and self-conscious, and hardly ever reaching the goal that it sets out to achieve. But a caress is a group of people who don't even know they're part of the same group, but uh, whose whose lives are, are all 
on a similar trajectory, who's, who are all sort of undertaking the same project or doing the same kind of work, or are here for the same kind of reason. And part of your task in life, according to Bokaninism, and I really like this, this belief, part of your task in life is to try to figure out who else is in your caress. And you may only meet five or six of, of those thousands of maybe hundreds of maybe millions of people in your lifetime, but that will be enough to fuel you, to, to sustain you. Because when you, and this is a belief I've held for a long time, when you meet someone that you recognize as a friend, I think the root of that friendship is often that you're, you're here for the same reason. You, you share some of the same fundamental purposes it doesn't have to be a specific goal or a specific job, but for example, you are people who want to be in the world in a life-giving way. You are people who want to say to that server, this meal was twice as good as it would have been if we hadn't had your spirit at this table. Thank you. You do a wonderful job. Um, we hope to see you again. Um, People who, who have the goal of being life-giving, members of your caress, the, the, the chance to meet as many of them as possible, and as you said earlier, Carrie, to overcome this cultural habit of failing to say things to people like, you're important, you, you count, you matter, you matter, your spirit enlivens things. Um, I'm grateful for your presence in my world. We have this cultural habit of being reticent or shy about that, as if it were somehow a no-no to, to give someone praise or blessing. It's really, really weird that that's a no-no. Um, there's so many things that ought to be no-nos <laughs> that are going on these days. Yeah. We need to counter that with as, with as much of this life force, this life-giving um, capacity that we have with each other as we possibly can. Um, to, to me, that's a good way to spend a day. It's interesting. There's, you know, the, there's a cultural kind of no-no, as you called it, um, of just saying it out loud. But there's also a little bit of a cultural no-no to accepting it, you know, and, and that's where I can be... Okay, I, I say I'm just such a Midwestern woman. Sometimes, you know, I dig my toe in the ground and say, "Oh shucks, not me." I had a lot of help. You know, it's just like mm-hmm. accepting a compliment has sometimes um, not been uh, easy for me. So, because there's this cultural, you don't do that. You know, and th- that might actually mean you think you're okay. We going back to the beginning of our our conversation. One of those things about growing up. Uh, as a woman and where I grew up, one of the worst things you could say about a person was, about a woman was, wow, doesn't she think something of herself? And like thinking well of yourself would not be a good thing, you know? So being able to accept those gifts and think of them as not just you know, a generosity, but a, a gift, a true gift to me, and that my acceptance of it, when someone says, I believe in you, to say thank you, what a gift to me. And in that sense, returning the gift to them, you know, that they went ahead and said it, which is a beautiful thing about them and their expression of who they are in the world. And I went ahead and accepted it with an open heart and not dig my toe in the ground. And, and so often I think, I mean, I find myself in the same kind of position, maybe because I'm a Midwesterner or something, but the reluctance to ex- accept praise. But th- those are those are always opportunities not only to receive a gift, but to give a gift back. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Those, those are, they, I hold them, you know, more, more easily or more gracefully when I realize this is an opportunity for a gift exchange. And this is something that you and I have talked about earlier, that somebody will come up to me, to you. In my case, they'll say, thank you for such and such a book. It saved my life. Um, that happens around what I've written about depression, for example, which has been very explicitly aimed at taking the shame away from depression, at, 
that's sort of saying, welcome to the human race. Uh, you know, you, there's a lot to be depressed about. You're not crazy. The rest of the world is crazy, but we can work through this together and come out in a life-affirming way on the other side. Thank you, for, they, will say, they will say, for writing that book, You Saved My Life. And I've, I've learned to say what is true for me, which is, I really appreciate your affirmation of that book. And I'm really glad that it spoke to you in the way that it did. But the truth is, I didn't save your life. You saved your life. You saved your life by internalizing those words in a way that was life-giving for you. You saved your life by doing the hard work of making those words become flesh in some way. And it's really interesting to watch what happens with people when I do that. Suddenly, it's not, you know, the, the reader at the feet of the author, but suddenly it's two human beings talking with each other, engaged in a gift exchange. And it's absolutely authentic, um, because there's no way I can save another person's life. I'm grateful for the fact that I found words to put on paper that were useful and helpful to them or life-giving to them. But they did the hard work of internalizing those words in a, in a life-giving way. I like that, the gift exchange of life. To think of our, all our interactions, even when we think about our history, where, was, where did the gift exchange happen? You mm -hmm. know, I, I think that's just a, a really lovely concept. Well, I think we're getting close to the end of our podcast here. And there's, we, we kind of went a lot of different directions with this question. Um, but I've really enjoyed this conversation, Parker. So, uh, you know, maybe it's time for some takeaways, or if you have a, a couple other thoughts. Yeah, I've loved the conversation, too. It's felt very real life to me. And it's <clears throat> taken me on a trip down memory lane, where, where I feel glad to be able to reclaim certain truths about how you walk this path that sometimes uh, get away from me. I, I think there is, there's one new thought I've had in the course of this that I didn't come into the conversation with, in addition to taking encouragement from, from everything we've talked about. Um, you know, we often find metaphors for life issues in the natural world. You do, I do, Mary Oliver does, um, and, and lots of other people do. Um, and I was thinking, especially when it comes to the whole question of people growing apart or growing together, and the importance often of sort of negotiating significant relationships in a way that allow that allows both people to grow. I was thinking about the way trees sometimes twine together, uh, maybe because I saw one of those out in the woods yesterday, um, so that each is following its own course of growth. Each is seeking the light in a slightly different way. They're not interfering with each other's growth, but they're doing this beautiful dance of entwinement. So there's a relationship there, but there's also an independence there. And I, I really, I treasure that. Um, it's, it's very different from entanglement, where two lives get so tightly entangled that it's hard to breathe. It, it's hard for either person to claim degrees of freedom. Um, there, it's a clinging relationship. It's a kind of f fearful relationship. It's, it, it, it's, it's hanging on to something in a way that eventually is going to kill it, the way, the way a vine too tightly wrapped around a tree will in fact kill that tree. But two trees that kind of do this dance with their trunks and or their branches of the sort I saw in the woods the other day is quite a lovely image for me about growing together rather than apart, and yet still growing. Yeah, and I love that image of the trees. I mean, that's a really wonderful metaphor and, and image to take with this. Also, I was reading about how, you know, well, half the tree is under the ground. You know, the root systems of trees and the forest, you can't always see what's happening from from the top, you know. And that 
you know, that trees, communities of trees will send, you know, nutrients and, and, and other things to, to one another, uh, to a tree that is sick or old. I mean, it's, 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 it's a really fascinating whole process of how trees are always kind of in this communication with one another. And one of my favorite images of all is I love to lay on my back and look up at the trees and the way that they, the tops of them move back and forth. And it's almost like the branches, almost like they're almost like fingers that, that touch and go back and touch and go back. But they're always kind of in this really gentle separateness and conversation and, and touching uh, all the time. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we think of a tree as a solid trunk a lot of times, you know, and, and maybe the leaves that fall. But that's one of my favorite images, that back and forth, that touch and release. And I, and I think that's also, you know, a, a nice metaphor for what you were talking about in terms of how we grow with one another, how we touch and we step back and we, you know, we entwine and we step back, you know, that, that there's something really positive about that. I'm also thinking a lot about, I'll, I'll be leaving this conversation thinking about caress, about all the people in my caress that I'll never meet, but are who are out there kind of putting a certain kind of spirit in the world. Yeah, and, there's something very trustworthy about that, I think. And I know that's true. And sometimes I get to meet them. It's like, oh, I recognize you. You're putting something yeah. into the friendly part of the universe here. Um, yeah. You know, so that that's one of the takeaways. I'll be kind of walking around thinking about, wow, you know, who's in my caress? And if I if I could channel, if I could channel Kurt Vonnegut for a minute, I would say the trick is Go not to get organized. Don't get organized. <laughs> do, do, do not elect a president, a recording secretary, and a treasurer. Just yeah. keep keep living your life and doing your work. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we've got a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and to bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation for Alison Quance, who is definitely part of our caress, and oh, does she matter.